This is Northwest This Week with your host, Mark Christopher. Hi, everybody. It's good to have you with us, and we are so ready to catch you up. Not just changes in all the temperatures and weather and Powerball, what a jackpot we've been looking at, and, of course, the midterms. You're tired of all the ads on radio and TV. I'm Mark Christopher with the help of our entire newsroom. We're going to bring you those stories you didn't have time for because, simply, you're too busy to catch us 24-7. So here's a way for you to catch up. Some ominous signs in the city of Seattle's revenue forecast is one story that comes to mind. Also, an eye-opening new study from our state on teens and COVID. Governor Jay Inslee lays out a plan for addressing homelessness in our state. This is just a fraction of the stories you're about to hear with Northwest News This Week ending for the week of November 5th. Let's get you all caught up and we start with our first story. Just as the City Council crafting Seattle's budget for the next two years, the revenue forecast predicts a steep decline in tax collections. Over the next two years, forecasters expect a $64 million decrease in real estate excise tax revenues, $9.4 million less in general fund revenues, and $4.5 million less from the sweetened beverage tax. This has made crafting a balanced budget for Seattle much more difficult. In a statement, Budget Chair Teresa Mosqueda says, quote, We will respond with urgency and compassion to this new revenue forecast by continuing to craft a budget that focuses on core city services, avoids austerity, and invests in a more equitable economy, end quote. A final budget is expected to be approved by the end of the month. Jeff Pogel in Northwest News Radio. City leaders in Vancouver, British Columbia said to be close to approving a new tax tax for hotels. Brian Calvert looking into a similar tax could be headed here, by the way. Supporters of the 2.5% added tax on hotel stays in Vancouver say the revenue will help pay for costs associated with hosting the World Cup when it comes to North America in 2026. The tax would be temporary and the city says it needs it because it will have to operate, quote, above and beyond normal operating city service levels. They also say the added fee is very common in cities hosting this event, which may be starting to perk ears around here. After all, Seattle is also a host city for the 2026 World Cup, and while any talk of an added hotel or restaurant tax hasn't made the headlines yet, host cities describe the cost of hosting such an event as astronomical. They also use the same word to describe the economic impact of having your city exposed like this on televisions around the world. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. The integrity of our elections remains a top issue in this midterm campaign. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio, talked about it with both state party chairs. Let's give a listen. Washington State's Democratic Party chair, Tina Podladowski, was quick to say Republicans embrace what's been dubbed the big lie, the denial that the last election was conducted fairly. Podladowski says her party's candidate, the appointed Secretary of State, Steve Hobbs, was among the few to start a disinformation unit. So hammering on that and making certain that people understand how safe Washington elections are, how well-run Washington elections are, but it's not as though... He's not dealing with bad actors all the time. State Republican Chair Caleb Heimlich says he believes it's fair to raise questions that, quote, it should be easy to vote and hard to cheat and that our vote is sacred. And we want to make sure it's one person, one vote, that it's only eligible voters that are casting their ballots and that we should all have confidence in the results of our elections. That's the only way our democracy is able to function. Heimlich also says he supports the use of ballot drop boxes. Both agree the most important thing is to make sure you vote. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Cameras monitored by the U.S. Capitol Police were rolling as a man broke into U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's home in San Francisco. Nobody was watching. 
Paul Kane covering it for the Washington Post and shared this with our listeners. Paul, at what point in the break-in did the officers assigned to monitor these cameras see the break-in at Nancy Pelosi's home and the assault on her husband, Paul Pelosi? Uh, they saw this when there were flashing lights outside the home from the San Francisco police that had already gotten there. Uh, they have a just an enormous amount of security uh, cameras to be watching. Most of them are focused on various points of the, the Capitol Congressional Campus, which is almost 60 acres in full. But they also do have security cameras at really high-risk, uh, high-threat places, such as the Pelosi family home in San Francisco. But it, I guess, you know, there, I don't know how many people, we've not been able to ascertain how many people are actually there in the, the so-called war room for the Capitol Police and at any given time, who's really watching uh, these other uh, security spots. They are well aware that at that point, Speaker Pelosi was back here in Washington, D.C., so nobody was watching. Nobody uh, saw that this intruder had jumped over a fence and ran up and broken a a glass door and entered the home. The only time that they knew that uh, there were, that something was wrong was after Paul Pelosi had called the San Francisco police and they arrived on the scene and the flashing lights was sort of popped up on, on this array of video screens, video monitors of all these different key spots. And they were like, whoa, wait a second, hang on. What, what is that? And they realized what was going on. You know, when I was reading your story today, I, I had this image in my mind of, of Beverly Hills Cop. I don't know if you've seen it in, in a while, but um, there, there's a scene where the security yeah, officials, sure. they take their sweet time to notice on the camera that, you know, Eddie Murphy has broken into this complex. But I've got a, a ring doorbell at home. I know instantly if a cat crosses my front porch. Do we know how old or out of date the speaker's security system is? That is an, an, an issue that they will not address. Her, her Most senior advisors are not talking about what type of... Uh, security she had on her own, private security. Uh, we do know that for a while, from, from late December 2020, well through 2021, especially after the January 6th attack, there was a San Francisco police car, patrol car, that was just sort of stationed out front of that house as a deterrent. That faded away over time. Uh, we're not sure why. The San Francisco police won't quite tell us exactly why. We do know that in late July, you know, the sergeant at arms of the House, the top security official, sent a note to every uh, every lawmaker and their chief of staff saying, look, here are the new personal security measures that you can, should take, and you get a $10,000 budget, and here are all these things that you're uh, allowed to spend on, including you know, vid your own private security video outdoors, motion sensors, just like your ring camera, and then something called broken glass, broken glass monitor sensor. And this was for all of the lawmakers. Everybody can do this. If that was the baseline for what they thought every lawmaker, all 435 members of the House should have, 
I just think somebody probably should have gone and said, well, you know, let's make sure that the Pelosi's have this since she gets more threats than any other member of Congress and has for a long time. Paul Kane, senior congressional correspondent with us from the Washington Post. Taylor Van Seis of Northwest News Radio. It's Northwest News this week. We're covering all the stories you might have missed, maybe a headline or two, but uh, we're helping to catch up for the week ending November 5th. I'm Mark Christopher. The State Board of Natural Resources held a spirited discussion over setting aside thousands of acres of timberland in the name of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Those close to the carbon project are carefully trying to figure out which 10,000 acres should be pulled from the timber harvest and left to absorb pollution. These forests store more carbon than any other forests in the U.S. Senior Policy Advisor Chinka Faberoni-Casorba. We've selected parcels that have these important ecological and cultural features that make them uniquely suited to generate revenue by storing and sequestering carbon. Carbon credits would be sold to big polluters to pay for the fight against climate change. But it's a long process, State Lands Commissioner Hillary Franz. The connection it has to our forest lands, we have to do what we believe is a very robust public engagement. And there could be consequences. In Skagit County, the selection of 85,000 acres could be devastating. Kendra Smith which funds local schools, fire districts, hospitals, a key piece of our local forest economy. The final selections won't be made until early next year. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. For medical stories just ahead, we'll talk about the RSV vaccination. We'll talk about COVID study and those boosters hang with us. Right now, what is life like without a car? Some elected leaders in Snohomish County found out during a recent week without driving campaign. And the results? In a video conference hosted by the Snohomish County Transportation Coalition, elected leaders talked about the challenges they endured going seven days without a personal vehicle last month. You can take public transit part of the way, but it often doesn't get you to your final destination. State Senator June Robinson said she could only get partway to her part-time job at the library. Then she had to hoof it. Ended up walking about a mile um, after that on not particularly friendly for pedestrian streets to get there. This year, according to the Daily Herald, the Disability Mobility Initiative, the group that promotes the week without driving, got about 450 people, including 80 public officials, to participate. Others who took part talked about the need for better crosswalks, protected bike lanes, sidewalks, and street lighting. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Thank you, Carlene. It's Northwest News this week. All stories to help you catch up from the week ending November 5th. More just ahead. You're listening to Northwest This Week. When it comes to COVID-19, knowledge may be part of the antidote. Manufacturer, in fact, explains why. A new study from Washington State University asked people ages 14 to 17 across the country questions about COVID. This was back in the spring of 2020. What was going on um, at that time in terms of knowledge about uh, COVID and whether knowledge would actually be um, comforting and, and reassuring. And that seems to be what we found. Psychology professor Chris Berry says those who answered more questions correctly also reported lower levels of stress, anxiety, and depression. We asked the professor if he thought they'd get the same results if the survey were done today. I want to think that two years out we would be better as a population about sort of filtering out 
good information uh, versus misinformation. Those with more knowledge also were less lonely and had less of a fear of missing out. Manda Factor, Northwest News Radio. Even though UW Medicine has administered roughly 20,000 bivalent COVID boosters, more still need to get the shot. Winter is just around the corner, and with more people staying indoors, that means respiratory diseases can more easily spread. It's going to be a most likely a tough fall winter season. We've got flu, we've got RSV, we've got COVID-19. That's UW Medicine interim president Cynthia Dold, who says only one in six Washingtonians over the age of 12 have received their bivalent or Omicron booster. Jeff Pogel at Northwest News Radio. This winter, we all have access to the flu and coronavirus vaccines. Widespread adoption of the shots could reduce stress on hospitals as a spike in RSV begins to fill the bed. But soon, perhaps by next year, vaccines could protect the hospital system from all three of those serious respiratory illnesses. Carolyn Johnson with the Washington Post had a story, and Taylor Van Sice of Northwest News asking questions. Carolyn, this isn't a shot that all of us would take, right? But what exactly is Pfizer working on? Pfizer announced today was the kind of preliminary interim results from its test of a vaccine, an RSV vaccine given to mothers who are pregnant. And it's indirectly, it protects newborn infants in their first six months of life, which is an extremely critical window where they're vulnerable. We all get RSV multiple times throughout our life. And mostly, fortunately, it's just kind of like a cold. (laughs) But There are these windows, both at the beginning of life and at the end, when people are older and more vulnerable, where uh, it can cause hospitalizations or even be life-threatening. The shot they're working on now protects up to six months after birth. What happens after that, though? Because when you're, you know, six months old, you're still quite vulnerable to the virus, right? Yep. There are also people working on a vaccine for babies and toddlers, and that's kind of an ongoing area. We're really in kind of a renaissance for research on RSV. It's been known for 60 years to be a problem, um, and it really is a problem in pediatric hospitals, but there hasn't been very many tools to help with it. There has been a monoclonal antibody drug, which you can give to very high-risk infants, but it's not really practical to give to all little kids. So, I mean, the first goal, you know, they're kind of working through all of these different populations. There are several vaccines for older adults that are have been shown um, in trials to be successful, and it's, it's to be seen, you know, how quickly the regulatory process might go. And then they're starting out with uh, maternal immunizations that can protect babies in the very first months of life. And then hopefully we'll see other tools as well for toddlers and and young children who are older than six months. Pregnancy comes with a million variables, as as we all know. Uh, Are there many safety concerns associated with the RSV vaccine to be given to new mothers? Well, we haven't seen all the data yet, but what Pfizer has disclosed is there were no major safety concerns in the trial. That'll be heavily scrutinized by regulators, so we will have a more full presentation of the data than we've seen today before it becomes available, for sure. Pfizer's hope is that we could potentially begin to vaccinate pregnant people before next RSV season, which is traditionally in the winter months, although COVID has kind of scrambled that because <laughs> because of, of all the kind of different ways our immunity has been mixed up the last few years. It all kind of remains to be seen. They haven't disclosed any safety concerns yet. 
Carolyn Johnson with us on Northwest News Radio. She covers science and health for the Washington Post. You can read much more online at WashingtonPost.com. Thank you, Taylor. In Bellevue, technology and traffic safety are on a collision course. 16 smart cameras are strategically positioned above intersections recording hazards and near misses traffic engineers might then use to improve safety. You know, technology is not an instant solution for this problem. Paul Tolme, Cascade Bicycle Club. Better infrastructure, more protected bike lanes that separate people on bikes from fast-moving cars and better-signed crosswalks so that drivers are aware. Traffic deaths nationwide hit a 16-year high in 2021, and the numbers in Washington have been climbing since 2019. Tolmay calls this a public health crisis. Smartphones, a lot of fatalities are caused by distracted driving. People looking at them while they should be paying attention. T-Mobile and Qualcomm are looking to collaborate, maybe a smartphone app for traffic hazards in Bellevue, but for now, some argue a low-tech approach might save more lives. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. Camped on a rooftop for the last 11 months, a Chicago pastor is back on solid ground, but only because he reached his mission. That is to raise $20 million for a new community center to help troubled youth. Northwest News Radio's Carlene Johnson shares how the man on a mission is forever connected to Seattle. Crews busy tearing down a building on the site where Pastor Corey Brooks plans a youth center. That news report on a local Fox channel in Chicago showed demolition underway for a new community center, an 89,000 square foot center across the street from where Pastor Corey Brooks leads his congregation, New Beginnings Church. Consistently seeing these young black men who were being shot and killed and now uh, the fact that so many children were being killed and no one was saying anything about it. That kind of just pushed us over the top as far as we need to hurry up and do something. The something was to camp on top of a shipping container in Chicago's Woodlawn neighborhood, refusing to come down until he raised $20 million to break ground on the community center that he says God gave him a vision for. There were good days and plenty of distractions for national and even international interviews, but there were some very long nights. Sometimes if you don't have a CEO or a pastor or a guest staying all night, uh, it can become a very trying time, a very depressing time because you're up there and it's real dreary and you're thinking, what am I doing up here? Is this worth it? But the night times made it difficult. I was glad to see the morning and the, the joy of the morning come. Since last November, he has lived on that container roof in a tent. He had a heater to protect him and lots of visitors, but he was separated from his family and his church family for 11 months. After spending over 11 months on the rooftop since November 20th of 2021 uh, till uh, this past weekend, this past Saturday, we were able to successfully raise $20 million toward our, our $35 million community center. And, um, but that gives us enough money to go ahead and break ground. So we had a groundbreaking ceremony. And now we're just trying to raise the rest of the $15 million around the country and uh, letting people know what we're doing. And we're really excited about it. One of his final pushes to goal, a donor in Seattle. So Pastor Corey is coming here in early December to meet supporters with a goal to replicate the motivation for changing young people's trajectory. The perfect time to create a model, uh, not just for Chicago, but something that would work in other areas like Seattle, San Francisco, uh, places where they're having violence, places where they're having poverty to work across the country. For more information, go to projecthood.org. That's projecthood.org. 
Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Some of the food headlines that came into our newsroom this past week. Some chicken breast patties sold at Costco have been recalled due to plastic pieces inside the meat. In fact, some of the 148,000 pieces of chicken were sold here in our state. Foster Farms is recalling the frozen chicken breast patties that were shipped to Costco distribution centers here, California, Arizona, Colorado, and Utah. The USDA says the patties may be contaminated with extraneous materials, specifically hard, clear pieces of plastic. The products have an expiration date of August 11, 2023. Customers who purchase the item are advised to dispose of it immediately or return the product to the store for a refund. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. The governor has a press release, says he's got an idea to end homelessness and create a better housing opportunity. And what about these deceptive letters sent out to more than 230,000 small businesses? These coming up in our next segment. But right now, Northwest News Radio's Kathy O'Shea with a nanoparticle technology being used to detect herbicides in food. Washington State University researchers have developed two low-cost tests using palladium and platinum nanoparticles that are sensitive enough to measure two of the most commonly used herbicides down to below maximum acceptable levels. Unlike other testing methods, these tests are inexpensive and small enough to be portable in the field. The university's Office of Commercialization is currently negotiating to license the technology. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. I'm Mark Christopher. It's good to have you with us. Whether you're tuned in here on AM 1000, FM 97.7, or catching it as a podcast at NW News Radio. You're listening to Northwest News This Week, ending for the week of November 5th. You're listening to Northwest This Week, and now Mark Christopher. Governor Jay Inslee says he wants to spend more money on homelessness and housing than the state did this year. To explain how much and how it's going to work, here's Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris. The governor says they know the shift to rapid rehousing has worked, including clearing camps near state-owned freeways. We know we need additional mental health and wraparound services for these folks. We know we need additional chemical treatment. We know we need more officers. We need more cops on the beat. But fundamentally, we need more housing in the state of Washington. Inslee says that includes more dense housing near transit and more middle income homes to keep prices down, so he wants permitting for building made easier. State Republican Party Chair Caleb Heimlich says we spend billions of dollars at all levels, yet the problem seems to grow. There are more people sleeping out on the streets, and so I think what we really need is a step back and a focus on results, actual results. Heimlich says that includes more drug treatment, not enabling drug use. Much of the $800 million for housing this year came from one-time federal money, but the governor says they expect the state general fund to help them surpass that amount. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. The opioid crisis has led to yet another lawsuit from the city of Seattle. City attorney Ann Davison is taking the consulting firm McKinsey and Company to court, arguing they were responsible for tripling the sales of Oxycontin and other drugs in our area. We are seeking economic injury damages, yes, that, that the city has endured because of this, uh, because of the, the fueling of the opioids that were marketed uh, so much in our area. She says the company acted as a marketing firm for Purdue Pharma and other manufacturers getting more drugs to patients by marketing to doctors, hospitals, and pharmacies. It's unclear just how much the city is seeking in damages, as this is just the start of litigation. 
Jeff Pogel in Northwest News Radio. Boeing's chief executive tells investors if you're expecting the company to roll out an all new commercial plane, don't hold your breath. Here's why. Starting well before the dual crises of 737 MAX crashes and the COVID-driven aviation downturn, Boeing watchers have been talking about the next big thing. Call it the NMA for new midsize airplane. Now, though, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun emphatically denies he's envisioning such a plane. I don't want to fill a gap in a product line. I want to build a product that's going to differentiate in a way that absolutely substitutes the, the airplanes that came before it. That plane, he says, must be sustainable and move away from traditional jet fuels. If he can't meet the emissions tests, and if he can't deliver significant performance advantages, then there won't be an airplane. It just won't. Perhaps even more significantly, Calhoun is looking for an autonomous or self-flying plane. Technology not quite here, but close. It's not unreasonable for us to think about autonomy on the next commercial airplane. Safety comes first, though, he emphasizes, but maybe in another 10 years. We'll pull the rabbit out of the hat and introduce a new airplane sometime in the middle of the next decade. There'll be a moment in time when we do that. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. They're two years late, but Blue Origin has completed delivery of two new rocket engines. The BE-4 engines will be used next year for the first launch of United Launch Alliance's next-generation Vulcan Centaur rocket, which will first launch a pair of prototype satellites and then send a lander on its way to the surface of the moon. GeekWire reports the project has been underway since 2014, but development and testing delays caused delivery to come two years later than planned. The engines are manufactured at Blue Origin's headquarters in Kent. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. Now, about those deceptive letters, the story goes like this. Two out-of-state companies are ordered by a King County judge to pay almost $25 million after sending more than 230,000 deceptive letters to small business owners here in our state. King County Superior Court Judge David Whidbey ruled both companies' business model was based upon deceiving small business owners. CA Certificate Service and Labor Poster Compliance sent letters that appeared to be from the government and demanded payment for posters or certificates that they implied were required. Their certificate is not mandatory, and the posters are available from government agencies for free. More than 15,000 businesses made the unnecessary payments. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. Thanks, Eric. Think you're pretty good with numbers? Brian Calvert introducing us to a person now setting the bar when it comes to a test most thought he was too young to take. There's nothing like going outside and playing with friends. So much fun, says Solomon Methvin, who also enjoys snowboarding and... I love running. Like, I can run really fast. I mean, if his running is anything like his math, you had better look out. I like homeschooling because I can do, like, as much math as I want. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. At nine years of age, the Portland boy is turning heads across the country, quite literally. He's so good with numbers, he's part of online classes at John Hopkins University Center for Talented Youth. He was fascinated with numbers and anything to do with them. Solomon's dad, Brian, tells KPTV.com his gifted son could count to 100 shortly after he could talk. And when he was three years old, he was doing like elementary age, you know, math work. Math isn't his life, but it is a big part. So are Pokemon cards. My favorite Pokemon is... Uh... Now that's important to keep in mind because somehow Solomon was introduced to the concept of the SAT. He asked his parents if he could take the math portion of the standardized test. He was fairly confident he'd do well. He even created a prize chart for himself. If he could score high enough, he would win 65 bucks to buy Pokemon cards with. Three, 
It's a magic number. Yep, the SAT score is indeed three magic numbers, with the highest possible combination being 800. In early October, the nine-year-old took the math SAT alongside kids who were twice his age. Just last week, following his 10th birthday, Solomon's dad found the test results on the computer and showed his son. Now you could interpret that one of two ways. Let me play it in context so you know the true feeling behind it. Yes! Yes! I was really excited. I, I was like so happy. I was like jumping up and down for joy. At the age of nine, Solomon Methvin scored a 750 out of 800. For the record, a 750 is what he needed for the $65 for Pokemon cards. I didn't expect to get that much. No one did. Enjoy those Pokemon cards. Dad is likely very grateful you didn't ask for a car. It's a magic number. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. A tragic event, Halloween in South Korea, and how to assess crowd control. It's the story we're going to get to here in just a moment. And arsons related to environmental activism. It's a story we're also going to share. But for now, Northwest News' Greg Herschultz sharing enrollment has opened for a popular state program that allows families to start saving for college while their kids are still young. It's the Guaranteed Education Tuition, or GET, program, and enrollment for the coming year began today. GET allows you to prepay future tuition costs by locking in today's rates and then keep pace with in-state college tuition costs. The state says savings in GET grow tax-free. They're not subject to the ups and downs of financial markets, so families can save with confidence. To learn more or to sign up, you can go to the website 529.wa.gov. You'll find details, charts, planning tools, and answers to questions that you may have. Greg Herschelt, Northwest News Radio. I'm Mark Christopher, and you're listening to Northwest News This Week, ending for the week of November 5th. You have found a way to catch up to the stories perhaps you missed or only got a headline, and there's plenty more just ahead. Northwest This Week continues. Welcome back. Police in South Korea should have been prepared for the Halloween crowds that crushed into a Halloween celebration Saturday night last week, killing more than 150 people. That's the assessment of a crowd control expert who used to work here in our state. In an exclusive with Northwest News Radio, Stan Kepart, a retired police chief from Washington and concert and crowd control public safety director, says South Korean police clearly failed to plan for what they should have known would be a huge event with 100,000 people pouring out into a confined area. That was a dangerous condition and should have been a movement immediately to tactically relieve the congestion so that this event did not occur. Kephart says as part of his training, he has intentionally inserted himself into situations where crowds are panicking, and he knows the mindset of that crowd. They did not put up a perimeter around the location and control the number of people that went into the area, and they could have and should have done that. At least two American college students are known to be among the dead. Carleen Johnson, Northwest News Radio. Gun violence remains a problem in King County, and those involved appear to be getting older. Taking a look at the statistics for gun violence in King County, you notice a couple of things. One, gun crimes have been on the rise since the pandemic, and two, the number of victims and assailants aren't as young as they used to be. Part of why we think that that number is going down, that percentage of shooting victims in their in their late teens, early 20s, 
that is going down is because of the proactive work with community groups. That's Casey McNerthney with the King County Prosecutor's Office. And while that is some good news, he says the number of reports of shots fired, though, is up 20% year over year. Jeff Pogel in Northwest News Radio. Another story on our desk we want to make sure you heard of. The state making progress with testing its backlog of sexual assault kits. A newly released performance report by the state auditor's office shows some success with the backlog getting smaller. Senior Auditor Olia Billibrand credits recent improvements. State Patrol acquired new equipment designed to automate processes and increase the number of samples tested at a time. Then they also adopted direct-to-DNA process to make testing more efficient. Bill Brown says this has enabled the patrol to test about 74% of all kits received. State Patrol stated that as of uh, August 31st, more than 4,000 kits were waiting to be tested. This compared to a backlog of over 9,000 kits in 2019. The performance audit makes no formal recommendations, but suggests the patrol continue its testing efforts. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. A King County judge is allowing a lawsuit against the Seattle Police Department over its handling of a sex trafficking investigation to move forward. The case involves local hip-hop artist Raz Simone, who was accused by several women of forcing them into sex work. The Seattle Times reports Judge Melinda Young ruled that the way police handled the case may have emboldened the musician to harm more people because a detective told him about the pending investigation. The focus of the trial upcoming next year will be how police handled the investigation. This is part of a civil lawsuit filed by five women against Simone and his record label. Greg Hersholt, Northwest News Radio. Thanks, Greg. On the run for more than a decade, a Seattle man now has been sentenced in federal court for a series of arsons related to environmental activism. 54-year-old Joseph Dibby was a member of the Earth Liberation Front when he committed acts of domestic terrorism back in the late 1990s. He was a fugitive until he was arrested in Cuba in 2018. The Seattle man has pleaded guilty to setting two fires at a meatpacking plant in Redmond, Oregon in 1997 and at a federally run wild horse corral in California in 2001. Oregon Live reports Dibby was held for two and a half years before pleading. The government pushed for a seven-year sentence, but Dibby told a federal judge in Eugene the crimes were, quote, a mistake and that he is truly sorry. The judge sentenced him to time served and a thousand hours of community service. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. A woman is charged with manslaughter following an accident that killed a Spokane officer last summer. Julie Nicola was driving a golf cart with Officer Jeffrey McCullough and three other passengers when it crashed last July in Bonner County, Idaho. Witnesses say the golf cart was driving too fast when it started to wobble, then flipped. McCullough died during the accident. The others suffered minor injuries. The Spokesman Review reports Nicola admitted to local police that she had two alcoholic drinks before driving and was later tested at a blood alcohol content level, a .091. The legal limit in Idaho is .08. Eric Heinz, Northwest News Radio. More design in the I-5 bridge over the Columbia River and at Olympia. Capitol Lake, a reason for removing the dam. You'll want to hear those stories and we'll get them to you. The governor's goal of more community mental health beds is coming to fruition with the latest grants to build neighborhood facilities. The grants are going to providers already doing the work, like one in Marysville that can take people who don't need to stay in the big state hospitals but still need some help with their day-to-day lives, which then frees up the hospital beds for people with more acute mental health needs. Matt Mazer-Hart, program manager for the Department of Commerce, which is issuing the grants, says part 
of the idea is to increase the number of mental health beds across the state, but also for facilities that are integrated into communities. Where they're close to social service supports, transportation, and some of the other things that people need to sort of fully enhance their recovery experience. Matt says those small clinics often have greater success at helping people back to independence. The money is to help providers build new facilities with the promise they'll be open at least 15 years. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. It's Northwest News this week. We're the ones that help you catch up to stories you may have missed in recent days or in recent weeks. Found right here every Saturday at this very time. Also, you can catch us at a podcast at nwnewsradio.com. I'm Mark Christopher. More of these stories from the week of November 5th coming up. This is Northwest News This Week. Capital Lake in Olympia might soon revert to a tidal estuary. What's it mean? Jeff Poljula of Northwest News Radio is going to explain. The lake was created as a reflecting pool for the state capitol and other buildings in 1951 by damming the mouth of the Deschutes River. But the more sedentary water of Capitol Lake means higher levels of pollution and the need to constantly dredge the sediment that builds up. Now, the state recommends the lake be allowed to revert to a tidal estuary by removing the dam. According to the Olympians, the plan would restore more than 80 acres of marshland habitat, create healthier waters, and allow for more community use. The city is on board as well, with the mayor saying estuary restoration is aligned with their climate goals and would help reduce flooding in downtown Olympia. Jeff Pogel on Northwest News Radio. Possible design elements of the future I-5 Columbia River Bridge unveiled this past week to members of a joint Washington-Oregon Bridge Task Force. Members of the joint Washington-Oregon Legislative Action Committee took great interest in the renderings, including a cross-section that shows two side-by-side two-level bridges with directional traffic on the upper levels and lower levels with light rail on one bridge and bike pedestrian space on the other. Those bridges would be able to share and, and truly be multimodal bridges. Frank Green with the Washington State Department of Transportation shared a second rendering showing a proposed approach design from the Vancouver, Washington side to the river in which light rail runs not on but alongside the bridge approach. The idea for transit, high capacity transit light rail is shown in that uh, kind of alignment to run adjacent to I-5. Addressing committee members, Green noted the designs are just for illustrative purposes. A four-year process of environmental review, adverse impact impact mitigation, and other regulatory milestones still lies ahead. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Discovering an object's historic significance is one thing, and apparently, if you chew on it, it's even more historic. For much of his life, Bob Friedman has been known as the Steinway Hunter. He's made a career out of tracking down grands and baby grands, but perhaps his most notable catch to date is a Steinway Model B with only 85 keys. Interestingly enough, it was put online uh, on an estate sale. Bob had to see it, so he made a call. He tells the website livingpianos.com. They knew what they had, but they didn't know the value in the history of the instrument. And after all the research was done, and all the paperwork was confirmed that it was Thomas Edison's piano, the one that was in his uh, laboratory uh, music room, 
I bought the piano. It was a good call. But I want to get back to Thomas Edison having a piano in his workroom. It was the late 1880s, and Edison had invented the light bulb and the phonograph. And it's believed that what you're about to hear is one of the first recordings he ever made. That, historians believe, is the Steinway Model B with 85 keys that Bob Friedman just bought. Edison's workroom workhorse was brought to Friedman's home, and that's where the next discovery was made. A very good associate of mine who is an historian for Edison. So he would know what he was seeing as he gazed down at the instrument. And he said, oh, those are Edison's bite marks. In his later years, Thomas Edison was almost completely deaf. The claim that he would actually bite the instrument has been substantiated by several sources. And the finish is torn away and the wood is torn away here. Edison would say by biting down, he could feel the music in his skull. Friedman and friends have replicated the technique using wooden shims so they didn't ding up the classic instrument any further. And it was confirmed. You can feel the music in your skull. Thomas Edison bought that piano for 750 bucks. Bob Friedman paid someone 45 grand for it early last year. And now that its full significance is known, it's likely priceless. We're hoping to do a uh, Smithsonian documentary and then to try and find a home for it in, uh, in a special place. Hopefully someplace where it can be played. The music you've been hearing is a modern recording of what Thomas Edison's workshop piano, complete with teeth marks, can still do. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio. Thank you, Brian. Well, it's very simple. We hope you find use of this program each week to help you catch up to stories of the recent week that maybe you just didn't have time for or only got a headline. Not only do we bring it to you on air, but also as a podcast. Northwest News this week, ending for the week of November 5th. You can find it on radio here at Northwest News Radio, AM 1000 and FM 97.7. And that podcast, you'll find it at nwnewsradio.com. Hey, if you enjoy the program as a podcast, we hope you'll share some time and share a rating and review at Apple Podcast. Northwest News This Week, produced by Bill O'Neill, editor and tech advisor, Painter Webb. I'm Mark Christopher. On behalf of all of us at the Northwest News Center, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.